The term passionate is a word thrown around and overused. Mountain life has become a hashtag for wannabe influencers. These words can overshadow and diminish the incredible people who actually live, work and play in the mountains. They have remarkable stories to tell and I'm on a mission to find them. I'm Ashley Pettit and this is the Beyond the Mountains podcast. My guest today is Liv Sansos, and she still has the hunger to compete and test herself with new challenges, or as she says, she has the thirst for effort. In her youth, she was a climbing superstar, winning world championships, world cups, and competing all over the world. Then, through a climbing accident, she had to refocus and set about conquering all the 82 4,000 meter summits in the Alps. She is a true mountain athlete, alpinist, paraglider, climber, big mountain skier and sponsored athlete. Now she is taking those skills and years of playing in the mountains and passing on her knowledge as a qualified mountain guide, leading clients to conquer their own personal challenges. Seeing firsthand the impact that global warming was having on her mountains where she lives, works and plays, she became a leading voice in their protection and wants us to change our behavior to protect the mountains for future generations. We talk about her role and as a spokesperson and ambassador for Protect Our Winters and Un Bottle a la Mer, or A Bottle in the Ocean. In this episode, Liv and I, we share a rope together and we climb through the different chapters of her life and her philosophy for living life to the fullest. Hello friends, I'm your host Ashley Pettit and welcome to another episode of the Beyond the Mountains podcast where I talk to people who live, work and play in the mountains. Let's start the intro music, get on with the show, Alon Z. Hello, my name is Liv Sansoz. I'm French. I live in the Northern Alps and uh, I'm a climber, a paraglider, a skier. I'm almost a mountain guide and this is my mountain life. Liv Sansoz, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So before I came here, I asked you to bring a climbing harness and some climbing ropes. Um, because I want to imagine that you and I are tied together. Oh. Um, because I guess when you climb, to, when you climb together, you need to have some confidence and trust in your partner. Yes, totally. Your partner has your life in his hands, and you have the life of your partner yeah. in your hands. Okay, so I'm, your life is in my hands today. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> um, but also, I wanted to use this analogy because I want to go on a multi-pitch climb sort of through your life, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. I want to get to know you better and use the multi-pitch as like a different chapters of your life, if that if we can do that. So... Um, that's the reason I thought we'd bring the rope and the harnesses today and do a multi-pitch conversation. And at the end of this uh, multi-pitch climb, we get to the summit. I want to ask you three questions that I ask every guest, and we'll save those to the end. Um, so you're ready to start. We're ready to. We say belay. We go. I'm ready to climb, and I'm ready to belay. Okay. So <laughs> before we get right into it, the first question or first thing I want to talk about is we're talking about ropes. Is 
a rope is not just a rope. If true, tell true. me what that means. A ropes um, being roped together with someone else means uh, much more than just uh, having a rope between. It's uh, it's a real uh, link of uh, of uh, trust, of uh, solidarity, of uh, bravery. Uh, it's uh, much more stronger than just uh, having a rope between two people. It's um, yeah, it makes uh, all the all the um, strength and all the power of what it is to be uh, a party, a party of two climbers or a party of three three climbers. Uh, everything is in the is in the link with the rope. Okay, so. Uh... I'm going to start off. We, we start off on our first pitch, and the first sort of chapter, I guess, is is living. My podcast is about people who live, work, and play in the mountains. So, let's explore where you live. I've done some research. I've tried to prepare <laughs> today. So, uh, born in Bourg-Saint-Moritz. Yes, I'm born in uh, in Sawa, in an area called Haute Tarentaise, and more precisely in uh, Bourg-Saint-Moritz, where uh, my whole family uh, still uh, still lives there. I grew up there as a child, uh, happy child, let's, let's say. Like all the child, I was uh, put on skis at the age of two and uh, really starting to ski when we were four, five. Uh, when I was 10, my parents were totally confident in what I was doing and they would uh, let me go skiing alone on the on the resort oh, of, uh, really? of Les Arcs. I remember sometimes uh, at school, we had a teacher that was not here and we were running at home, taking the ski gear and going skiing for, Two uh, two hours and coming back to go to school when we were a teenager, that was really um, a, a happy life. And in the summer, I had the chance to have um, a small um, uh, chalet that uh, my parents uh, rebuilt in an area called uh, Les Chapieux at the base of uh, L'Aiguille des Glaciers. My grandfather was a um, goat uh, farmer and I was always uh, going with him with the goats and always uh, uh, hiking in the mountains, uh, searching for uh, for Edelweiss and also uh, with my uncle, we were uh, searching for uh, the crystal uh, stones. Yeah, okay. And um, I read somewhere that... Um your, did you wanted to? When did you climb Mont Blanc? Was that with your father? Yes, I. Um, that was, was that before school? You had to do it before school, before an exam. Exactly. So at the age of uh, 10, 11, I, uh, my uh, dad is not really an alpinist, but he's um, he was always doing ski touring, and uh, my, both my parents were really uh, mountain lovers in a, in a way, not performers, but just in the way uh, the mountains are a special place, uh, and it's a beautiful place, and they they. They transmitted to my brother and I this eye of um, of the beauty of the mountains, and uh, also uh, we have to to protect uh, this uh, this this area. So my parents were not alpinists, were not climbers, but but they were um, really uh, loving the mountains, and they brought us uh, hiking and uh, uh, sleeping in the mountains really early. And my dad was doing a lot of ski tours during the winter, and at the age of 10, uh, 11, I asked him to go ski touring with him and his friends. And he said, uh, 
Yes, uh, I bring you, but this is not uh, something for a little girl. Uh, maybe you will be bored after the first uh, ski tour, so you should uh, <laughs> you should ask some some uh, friend from school to uh, to come with you. And I ask uh, one girlfriend to come and my cousin to come with me. We did the first ski tour together, and I loved it, and they did not like it. So they said, "Ah, we don't come again." <laughs> and uh, I I went. Uh, Every weekend, I was with my dad and his friend uh, ski touring, and you have imagined—you have to imagine that at this time, uh, the gear was not existing, no. especially for little feet and for a little uh, girl or boy of 10 years old. So we had to make some little um, do-it-yourself uh, adaptation on my skis, on my bindings, on the skins. But uh, I had really heavy gear, but I loved it. And uh, every weekend I, I was uh, ski touring. And from that, I discovered the mountains a bit more. I discovered the summit around the, the summit around my place. And uh, I started to read all the books I could find uh, uh, in the house, like um, the Messner books, the Bonatti books, uh, Rebuffa books, all the, the big uh, talented alpinists. And they really, uh, I don't know, I got so attracted by this world and I got so uh, amazed by uh, those people and the stories they were telling. Uh, when Bonatti was saying he was training uh, outside of his house, sleeping outside of his house to train for the cold, I started to sleep on the balcony of the house uh, to to train for the cold and, and things like that, you know, in a, in the head of a little uh, of a little kid, everything, uh, the imagination is big and uh, Uh, and I was really uh, attracted by this world. So at the age, uh, at the age of uh, 14, I... Um I've heard there was a climbing um, association who started in Bourg-Saint-Maurice and I asked my parents to uh, to put me in this association and it was a Picou. He was a mountain guide who created this uh, association. He really uh, gave me his uh, love and passion for climbing and I started climbing with him and the other kids and I really, really loved it. Um, and uh, I was supposed to do my first uh, national uh, French championship at the end of the summer. And just before that, well, the whole summer, I have asked my dad, Dad, I want to climb Mont Blanc before uh, school starts again. And he was, yes, yes, we will, uh, we will see, we will yeah. see. And the whole summer, it was like, Dad, I want to climb Mont Blanc. Yes, yes, we will see. And at the end of the summer, I was like, Dad, the school is, is starting in one week and I have the national championship and we have to climb Mont Blanc. And he was like, okay, we go. <laughs> so we went um, on Mont Blanc with no uh, booking for the hut. We slept on, we slept in the in the main room uh, on the table and on the bench because we had no, uh, yeah, no, space. no space for us and we uh, did the Mont Blanc and uh, I was really happy despite the we had bad weather so um, I could not see much and when I was on top of Mont Blanc I said okay now next I want to climb Aiguille Verte and he was like ah no Aiguille Verte is too technical for me you you'll do it when you are older <laughs> and the next day I started the qualification for the uh, French uh, national uh, ship yeah. and I finished third which was really good for me because I uh, did not climb uh, in the summer. And from that, uh, at, at this place, I heard uh, lots of uh, girls around me. They say, ah, we have a, um, I have a training wall at home. Or, ah, my dad, he built a training wall for me or things like that. So I came back home and I told my parents, okay, I want a training, home, uh, training, training wall, wall yeah. at home. <laughs> uh, at home, uh, 
so I can climb more. <laughs> and you have a training wall at your new home now in Nishamani? No, I, I had a very uh, big uh, training wall in Bourg-Saint-Maurice and it's still, uh, it's still, still there. there. Yeah, my brother did not want it to, uh, to unbuild it, so it's still there. We still climb from time to time on it. But uh, in Chamonix, uh, I don't have a big house to have a, to have a, a climbing uh, wall uh, in the house. Yeah. But uh, speaking of Chamonix, that's your that's your home now. That's where you're living now. Tell me about Chamonix. I moved to Chamonix about uh, 13 years ago. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would like it or not uh, because Chamonix is quite intense. So I moved, decided did okay I uh, I have a look if I like it or not and after three weeks I was like wow I love this place I met so many uh, good people it was so easy to climb every day uh, the mountains are high beautiful Uh, you have the, of course, you have the lift that brings you high, so it's easier to get to the heart of the of the glacier or of uh, high mountains. And uh, the dynamics, the community is big with lots of uh, of uh, also uh, foreigners. Like you have the uh, Swedish, Americans, uh, Spanish, English people, uh, and I love the cosmopolitan aspect of yeah. the of the community it's as well. It's very different from Valsony, isn't it? <laughs> 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 but but uh, Germany is also like, it, it, you talk about the international community, it is a mecca for climbing and alpinists and uh, skiers and it's where people want to go. Uh, you know, there's lots of athletes there. Yes, there are lots of, uh, of uh, athletes, there are lots of uh, people, they coming, resting for two or three years, maybe uh, leaving, maybe coming back or maybe just... Uh, Um, living for for long there, it's uh, it's a very special place. It's not a easy place. It's quite intense, and you have the call for the mountains every day. And sometimes you have to tell yourself, no, not today. It's too dangerous, or I need some rest. Otherwise, uh, uh, it can be dangerous for me. Uh, but uh, you have everyone around you that is climbing, so you want to climb also every day, and you have to be a bit careful with the. Um, Uh, this aspect of uh, oh, everyone is climbing, let's go again, and uh, never resting. You, yeah, so you it's have... important to understand your body and understand uh, the need for a rest. Totally, yeah. And also when uh, uh, the snow conditions are a bit too dangerous, not not be crazy, not, yeah, be, uh, stay conservative, be careful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Chamonix is also the home of one of your sponsors, one of your new sponsors, uh, Black Crow is the headquarters there. Sure, yeah. Black Rose uh, is a brand of uh, 16 uh, years old now. It's uh, been uh, created in Chamonix and uh, the office is in Chamonix as well. Uh, it's a very, it's a totally local uh, local brand and yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, my main uh, partnership. Okay. So um, that's the first pitch. The second pitch I want to talk about is uh, work and understand what you what you do for work. So um, let's talk about your early your early career, which is your competition climbing career. Um, first of all, what is competition climbing? I've never, I, I know a little bit about it, but I never really uh, understood what it was till I came here to the French Alps. So tell me what competition climbing is. Okay, so in sports climbing, you have um, 
uh, you have different, uh, how can I say, different disciplines. Uh, but when I started, like many years ago, the main discipline was uh, difficulty climbing. And the difficulty climbing is um, on an on artificial wall. So, for instance, Paris said, okay, we do a World Cup. So there will be a, a wall uh, built for about two to three weeks, uh, especially for the event. And there will be a team of uh, international route setters who will come as soon as the wall is built. And they will start to uh, set up uh, a quarter final, a semi-final, a final, and a super final. And this is both for women and for men. Uh, when you arrive as an athlete to the to the area of the competition, you uh, have to to do your quarter or final and qualify to the semi final and qualify to the to the final. You don't know the route. You are put in a isolated room yeah. where you can warm up. You have a small uh, climbing wall in this isolated route, so you can warm up your body and you have a starting list also. And uh, you have to go when it's your turn. You, you are called and you you have to go. Before that, you have a six-minute... Um, um, six minutes to examine the route or exactly. design or plan your route, plan the attack? You have a six-minute six minute to observe the route. Uh, you can't have a phone, you can't have a camera, you, you can have a paper if you want, but you have six minutes to... Uh, to uh, look at the route, uh, understand the moves, understand the, where are the, the crux part. The crux part is a difficult part. Um, where, where you have to be careful, uh, look at, uh, okay, this small foot, I have to remember it, uh, uh, and understand uh, all the, um, the steps of, of the route and what the route setter have uh, imagined. And then after those six minutes, you go back to the isolated room, you can speak between those the girls of the beta yeah or you can um, just relax and not be uh, uh, speaking and uh, be uh, in depth or because if someone comes and tell you ah this I really don't know how to do it and you when you watch it you are you it was clear in your head how to do it yeah they can suck you out <laughs> totally so from Personally, I prefer to stay quiet in my uh, in my bubble, in my uh, bubble of uh, concentration, and not speak too much uh, with the others because uh, for me the moves were uh, quite uh, clear pretty much all the, all the times. And after it's your turn to go, you don't know where the other climbers felt. You don't know because you have no information. Can you hear the crowd? Sometimes. So you, if, you, if you have a big cheer, you know they've done a good time or they've done something great. Exactly. Sometimes you can hear the, the cheering of the others and sometimes you understand, ah, she uh, she topped out the route because it was so loud and uh, you, underst you understood, uh, okay, at least there is one person who uh, topped out the route. Yeah. Um, and. This can put a little bit of pressure, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, all you have to do is to climb the route to the top and be focused on the move. So uh, I always try to to not care of what the other will do, because what the other will do was not linked with, with what I was capable to yeah. do. So I always be like, okay, cool, someone uh, sends the route. Uh, I have to send it, uh, send it as well. So speed is not uh, was not um, no? a criteria. Uh, you had a limited, limited uh, time uh, to climb, like 10 minutes or 12 minutes or 8 minutes. It depended on the format. Uh, but uh, speed was never uh, a criteria. This was when I was climbing uh, back in the 
Uh, it was more than 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> yeah. so a lot of things have uh, changed now. Um, and uh, so just to finish, when you're cold, you go, you do your, uh, your performance, you tap out the route, and then uh, you come back the next day to do the final uh, yeah. and, and maybe the super final. And you won a few finals. And I won a lot of, uh, of uh, World Cup and uh, I won two times the World uh, uh, Championship uh, title. That is uh, every two years. Yeah. Um, you have the European Championship and the World Championship every year, so... Every two years, you have the world championship. And now, uh, climbing is at the Olympic Games. Yeah, I've we got that on my list. Was that uh, <laughs> looking now back at the, because that was 2020 Olympic Games in yes. Tokyo. Was yes. that something that you think, oh, we should up the opportunity or... Well, uh, yes and no. I um, I was like, oh, it would have been so uh, so great if uh, climbing was at the Olympics uh, when I was strong. <laughs> but uh, um, the format, the first format ever of the Olympics, would not have uh, suited me at all because in the format they um, they had there was speed, which is another um, um, discipline. In English, mm -hmm. discipline and uh, bouldering. Yeah, I've got that. So I've written down here that, that I thought that the competition claim was bouldering and you know climbing and speed climbing was made up of sort of three different three disciplines. Yes, exactly. So you can win the World Cup of uh, sports climbing. You can world won the win. Sorry, you can win the World Cup of sports climbing. You can win the World Cup of uh, bouldering, and you can win the World Cup of uh, speed climbing. And for the Olymp Olympic Games, they uh, decided: okay, if you want sports climbing to be an Olympic sport, you have to have the three. Uh, discipline together and we make um, uh, numbers and there will be one winner. An overall champion, yes. yeah. Uh, but this was not fair because um, the really strong sports climbers, they are not good at speed climbing, generally speaking. So someone like Adam Andra, the Czech climber, who is one of the strongest ever climbers, uh, he placed maybe eight or I can't remember okay. now, but he was not even on the podium because speed, speed was not uh, his uh, his thing. Yeah. And it would have been the same for me if I had to uh, to do the Olympics. I would have uh, lost uh, because of speed for sure. For the next Olympics, now I think it will be three uh, different disciplines and three uh, medals. Three medals. Yes. And that's going to be in Paris next year. Exactly. Do you think you'll go and watch it? Um, probably not because I will be on expeditions, okay. but yeah. okay. I will try to follow. Uh, if we have a bit of internet, I will try to follow because uh, I, I love watching competition. And uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, it reminds me lots of good memories and uh it's amazing to see all these athletes, super strong uh, athletes, uh, fighting uh, so hard for for the Olympic medals. Yeah. And the speed when you were competition climbing, you obviously got to travel around the world a bit. Where yes. did you get to travel to? You travel a lot. You travel to uh, Russia, to United States, to uh, um, of course Italy, Spain, in England, um, Switzerland that are not too far. But you also go to uh, Bulgaria, to um, 
Yeah, many uh, East Country. I had never had to go to the Asian uh, uh, site for a competition because there was not much um, uh, Asian climbers yeah, back but in now the day. It's changed, isn't it? <laughs> it has changed yeah. a lot. Yes, <laughs> they are the strongest. Yeah, yeah. especially um, for the competition climbing. Um, I read this, and maybe I, I I'll ask it, but. You said that uh, when you were competition climbing, you were a plastic climber. Yes. What does that mean? Um, because um, the competition are on artificial wall. We call it a plastic hold yeah. or plastic wall. And because we train a lot on artificial wall to be strong, uh, I mean, if you have, a, imagine if you're a skier and you have a, a downhill in your house, how many uh, hours you could do every day depending uh, whatever the weather is, whatever the time of the year is, it could be summer and you will be still uh, training your downhill uh, skills. You would be uh, so much stronger than anyone else. When you have a climbing wall at your place, you climb every day on it. On it, I was climbing eight hours a day as a teenager on my wow. climbing wall because uh, I loved it. It was fun. And also I saw the how fast I improved because of, of that. So when you have a climbing wall, you spend a lot of hours on your uh, climbing uh, wall or climbing gym and uh, you're called a plastic climber yeah. because you're, 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 on a, you're climbing a lot on the plastic. You also have to put this uh, with the rest of the context. When I started to, uh, when I got into the French uh, national team, I was 16 and uh, I had no driving license. I was still at school. So I had very little time and uh, climbing at home on my climbing uh, gym was uh, the best for me because I, I, I did not have to travel. I could uh, do my work, homework like I was For, for example, I could do a long uh, circuit of uh, 50 moves and then I needed 30 to 40 minutes of rest and I was doing my mathematic uh, work uh, in front of my, uh, on the mattress, in front of my climbing uh, yeah. wall because uh, that's how I, I could, uh, I had the time for that uh, to train and yeah. to, to do my homework for school. And uh, it's sure I was not going a lot at a crag because no driving license, cool, and I was living far from uh, the nice cracks that are in the south of France. Yeah. yeah. All right. So speaking of um, one of the other things I'm learning about climbing is, uh, is and your history of climbing is you're one of the first female athletes to climb, I think it's at 8A? 80 plus. 80 plus. 80 plus. Explain to me this grading system and what that means. So in climbing, we have a Great, like you said, um, if you start, uh, you maybe start on a five. Uh, and if you climb a little more, you are climbing some six. And then when you climb regularly, some seven. And inside the grade, you have, let's say, okay, six, six A, six A plus, six B, six B plus, six C, six C plus, and then seven A, seven A plus, seven B, seven B plus, seven C, seven C plus, and then you go to eight. And it's the same, um, and it uh, it tells the difficulty of the route. If you are a six A climber, uh, you arrive at a crag, you look at the guidebook, and you know you you can climb, uh, you can warm up on a five or five B, five B plus or five C. 
and then try some 6A and maybe you want to try a 6A plus or a 6B to, to try something harder. Um, so the smaller the holes are, the steeper the walls are, the harder the grade uh, are. Yeah. And when you uh, climb regularly, you are climbing on, on the eight, the numbers, and maybe you can climb 8A, or maybe you can also climb uh, AB or 8C. And back in the days, in uh, 2000, uh, there was one Spanish woman who climbed some uh, 8C+, and um, I climbed also some 8C+. We were the two only uh, women to climb uh, this uh, grade of difficulty. 20 years later. Uh, What are they climbing now? Yeah, the woman, the best woman, uh, she's climbing uh, 9B. 9B. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I want to put that into context now because a lot of people will have seen the Alex Arnold movie, Free Solo, and he climbed the wall and El Capitan. Have you, have you climbed El Capitan when you went into the States? Yes, I climbed uh, El Capitan uh, two times uh, by the Nose Route and by uh, Zodiac Route. There are many, many routes yeah. on, uh, on El Cap. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a long, long journey. Uh, what's, what's the the grading of these climbs? So it's totally different because, um, first of all, it's uh, cracks climbing most of the time. So it's a different technique. Yeah. And also you put your, uh, you place your own gear to protect yourself. In uh, When you sport climb, you have balls that are already put in the, um, in the rock. Yeah, yeah. And you just <clears throat> have to put your quick draws and put your, your rope. In Yosemite, on the cracks, you need a lot of gear. You, uh, you need um, camelots, you need uh, nuts, uh, and you place your camelots, and then you put your rope. So you have to be smart on how you place your, your gear because you want your gear to, to hold you in case of fall. So you've got to carry that as you climb. How much does that weigh? Uh, it's uh, it's really heavy. Yeah, it's, it's heavy because you you need uh, you need a lot of gear. Ten kilos, twenty kilos. No, maybe not. Uh, maybe not. But um, uh, I don't know if, if you have five kilos. It's already five kilos. It's already yeah. a lot to lift on top of your own weight. Uh, it's maybe even less than five kilos, but it's a lot of gear on you, on your harness. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's completely different. And you can climb um, uh, the nose uh, if you're super fast in one day, or you can climb it in four days, like we did the first time. We took us uh, four days to, to climb the route, and you sleep on a portal edge, and you hold uh, your water, you hold your uh, sleeping bags, you hold everything. So it's... Uh, completely different uh, um, journey and type of climbing and um, yeah it, it's a little uh, mission yeah you have all the elements in uh, the weather the elements the humidity the the I guess the 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 rocks changes the feelings of change all sorts of things can influence the the outcome yes uh, totally uh, and also you have factors you can't manage such a, such as uh, slow people in front of you but you can't really pass them or um, your whole bag got get stuck and it's really tricky to go and uh, uh, get it moving again uh, and it's really heavy like the first day when you start and you have the water for four days uh, your whole bag is so heavy I remember I, I could not uh, hold it we had to be uh, two people to hold it and little by little days after days because you're drinking yeah. and you have less water it starts to be uh, easier okay um One of the things that uh, every climber is going to have is injuries. You've obviously had um, 
a lot of broken bones, some frostbite. What's the what's been the latest sort of injury you had? And tell me some of the, some of the injuries you've had over the years. Okay, so um, as a climber, I did not have a lot of injuries, but I have I had uh, one accident uh, doing base jumping that uh, really uh, uh, put my body uh, uh, very weak. I had to stay for three months on a bed. So when your um, bones are not uh, with weight on it and when you lose all your muscles, uh, when you start working again, you're not the same person. You are weak. You don't have the good uh, reflex. You don't have the good way of moving in the mountains. You're, you're weak because you have no more muscles, but also because your body has to real learn again yeah. how to, to work on a tricky terrain or how to, to react when things are moving and uh, your body is not, um, is not ready, uh, ready uh, the first year. Maybe it takes a year or maybe more. And because also my bones were really weak, uh, I, I had a lot of small uh, accidents, uh, not necessarily uh, doing sports but uh, like falling on uh, on stairs or, uh, or um, things like that where I, I would break my wrist where I would break my uh, vertebra where I would break my ankle so I had this crazy uh, years maybe five to six years where every six months I would break something uh, which was really really annoying for yeah, me very frustrating because uh, I was like, how? When is it going to end? And uh, I could not project myself for uh, for a nice project because uh, I had to go to the physio. I had to do rehab all the time, and I never felt strong. So it was um, it was a tricky uh, period of time. But like every um, period of, ta- of time that is difficult, you learn a lot. Uh, you and if you are able to transform that on something positive, you. Uh, you grow from it and you are probably a better person after that. Yeah, and you always came back to the mountains. You always came back to climbing, didn't you? Sure. I never thought uh, oh, I gave up. It's not uh, giving up is not an option. So I always came back. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of coming back, if, if I say to you risk versus reward, what do you think? What do you say to that? Well, that's an interesting uh, question and a, a difficult uh, one. I I always try to limit the risk. I don't like the danger too much. I don't like taking risk too much. But sometimes you have no choice. You have to go for it. Um, and I think, okay, maybe the reward is... Uh, or you have the feeling the reward is bigger if you overcome a risk or a danger because uh, your emotions are much higher. But I also, I'm also convinced that you can have a lot of uh, satisfaction, reward by doing something where there was no danger, but something very aesthetic and something uh, you just um, wanted to do and uh, uh, that was... Uh, on your list and you finally uh, do it. Yeah, I think that's a good, good way to uh, look at things. Um, another sort of similar question is um, I read somewhere that you said to take care of yourself, you have to surpass yourself. Okay, uh, I can't you remember, remember. You can't remember that? It's like pushing the limits, going beyond. What did you mean by that? Sure, I mean, if you want to push the limit, you have to, to take care of you, but... 
uh, above all to know yourself very well and to know till where or till when you can go or push and when you have to stop. I yeah. think uh, knowing yourself and knowing where it's time to um, to stop and maybe um, yeah come back, it's the most important. Yeah. And your um, your philosophy, your, I don't know if this is your philosophy or your mantra for life, but it's live life to the fullest. Yeah, for you sure. Still, you still uh, following that? One life, live it. Uh, yeah. We all... All have only one life, so we all have to uh, to really live it to the to the deepest, to the fullest. Because oh, it would be terrible to wake up uh, old and be like, "Wow, I wanted to do this and this and this my whole life, and I never, I never went for it." Yeah, and I want to live the life to i mean life is uh, is amazing there are so many uh, beautiful things to do uh, yeah go for it wake up in the morning even if it's hard and uh, and build your project uh, make the things happening uh, go for it dare to dare to try even if it doesn't work at least dare to try so you have no regret it's a nice way to live. Um, we're moving on to our next pitch now and this is where I want to talk about sort of maybe your mid career um, you've sort of, we talked about you coming back from injury, but after that you needed some new challenges. So tell me about the challenge of climbing the 82 highest or 82 4,000 meter peaks. Yes. So after those five, six years of, uh, of being injured almost, uh, all the time, let's say, I, uh, I was like, okay, I have to, to break this cycle. I have to, to, to get out of this and, uh, I need, a I need a nice project. I need a project that uh, um, is a bit like uh, is is like the wo- the woman I, I became. Uh, something nice, something aesthetic, something that has a, a meaning for me, and something where I don't have to uh, travel the world to to make it happen. Uh, I've been climbing in uh, Pakistan. I've been climbing in Patagonia. I've been climbing in China, and then I was like, oh, oh but we have like amazing mountains in the Alps. I maybe know 20% of them. Uh, why I would not have the, uh, the project to climb all of the summit above 4,000 meters we have uh, in the Alps. Uh, like that, I don't have to travel far and I get to know uh, the area uh, really well. And it's an amazing project because 82 summits, I can tell you it's a lot. When yeah. I wrote the name of all the mountains and some I, I had never heard before, <laughs> I wrote the name on my uh, on my handbook, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is a lot, really!" Uh, and I wasn't sure I would uh, I would manage. And you set the target. You said, "What, what was the, the 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 time frame for you? Was it one year, or was there an open time frame?" Yes, I told myself I uh, give me uh, one year to to do that. But if it takes longer. Uh, it's okay. I will okay. finish it when I will finish it. But I um, I gave a, a year where I said uh, no to everything else uh, so I could focus uh, on, on this project. And uh, if I finish it in a year, it, it would have been amazing. If it would have taken longer, uh, it was fine too. Yeah. Uh, after the first year, I was missing uh, six uh, summits, I think. Yeah. yeah. And the the one of the great things I liked about the video because this was documented, you made a nice, really, really nice film about it. Was 
you shared some of these summits and these moments with some of your best friends. Yeah, exactly. So I um, so the idea was to uh, to have a project, a, a new challenge for me uh, after the years of injury. But also behind that, it was to uh, have a, a human uh, adventure because um, I uh, share this project with 22 friends. Uh, they were uh, we made the planning and they were coming like my uh, Colin Halley, who, who is an American climber, really strong. He came for the first three weeks, and after that, it was my girlfriend Julie. Monego, she's Italian, she's a mountain guide as well. Uh, she came for 10 days. And so the, the year was already, uh, we had a schedule for the year. I knew um, where who, is, who was coming when. And I had a, a rough idea of uh, which meet we will climb. But um, uh, I also had a um, weather forecast route setters that was uh, telling me about uh, the weather like three or four days in advance. Yeah. And I also adjust the choice of uh, the mountains with the weather and also with uh, my friends. Uh, I wanted my friend to be happy. So if they wanted to climb, like if someone said, I want to climb Matterhorn uh, by this route uh, with you in this project, then I was trying to organize. Try everyone happy. Yes, to organize uh, the um, climbing and the route with the right person, with uh, what they wanted to do. So everyone uh, was happy and would do something new yeah. and something uh, interesting for for them. And the other idea behind this project was to um, to start in the winter so we could ski a lot for the easiest uh, summit. Yeah, it wasn't just skiing and climbing. But you had uh, parapons, you used your e-bikes, so you did a lot of forms of... Uh, mountain activities to get to the summits. Exactly. We, uh, I decided that to start in the winter so we could ski, but also for the summer to use uh, the paragliders as much as we could so uh, it would be faster to get down, less tiring. And also because I, in this project, I did not take any lift. I decided to start from the, from the bottom, from the valley floor, up to the summit, a bit like the pioneer were doing. Like yeah, when exactly. they climbed the Mont Blanc the first time, they left Chamonix and they had no lift, no telephrey. They started from the valley floor and it took them five days to reach uh, the Mont Blanc. And I really uh, like this idea to start from the valley floor and go up. And this is also gave us the possibility to... Um, to have a much uh, wilder mountain because we were not depending on the opening of the hut or on the opening of the lift. We were, because we were starting from Yeah, down. sometimes you were sleeping on small little ledges in the mountains, weren't you? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we had to bivouac on a really exposed uh, ridge uh, because uh, we had no other choice and it was, uh, the dark was coming. Uh, sometimes we were sleeping in the winter huts. Uh, there was nobody else. So there was also no tracks, but for the first uh, 40 summits, we saw nobody on the, on the 4,000, which is pretty, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Rare, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> So achieving um, this this task or this this objective of climbing the eighty two summits, you obviously really need a taste for effort. You you use this term. I've read this before. What does the taste for effort mean? Um, I think okay, alpinism, uh, mountaineering, climbing. It's not. Uh, 
it's not fun. It's not a type of fun one, as we say, because you don't have fun directly during the ascent or during the climb. Most of the time, it's hard. You're cold, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're sometimes scared. You It's sometimes difficult. You battle, you fight. And it's when you are on the top, uh, you, you really uh, enjoy what you did. Yeah. Uh, if you go skiing, you have fun. Like, put your skis on, you have fun because you, you go down or if you ride a bike it's fun it's easy you, you ride uh, your bike and same for paragliding for alpinists for mountaineering for ski touring as well you need to have this um, uh, taste of effort you need to enjoy the process of uh, of uh, moving of uh, uh, going up for five six seven eight ten hours sometimes uh, and some people they don't uh, uh, I well I think now in our society it's less and less people who like uh, efforts uh, everyone wants uh, easy pleasure yeah. you know I can I can buy that. I have it and I yeah. have pleasure. Or I can uh, have a good restaurant and it's a uh, instant, uh, instant pleasure. Instant gratification, yeah. Yes. And for the mountains, it doesn't work like that. No. And I think we lose a bit um, this uh, in the society now. Uh, to have uh, you, you have to produce some, some work. You have to produce some effort to get uh, gratification, to get the reward. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the taste of effort is something good. I mean, you feel your body, you feel your muscles, you feel your your, um, your life. You know, you feel everything is uh, is alive. Everything is. It's not easy for sure, but uh, it's a, such a good feeling to to feel. Uh, well, it's not easy, but uh, one step after the other, I make it, and uh, my body is. Uh, I'm endurant. My body will. Um, He's working well, and, uh, and yes, you. It's I don't know. It's where I feel the most alive. When was the last time you you felt that taste of effort? Um, good question. Well, I mean, um, I just had uh, three weeks ago my um, ski exam for the mountain guide education, and we had long, long days. Yeah. Uh, so, and we had to put some tracks uh, in the mountain, so it was not easy. And I think uh, um, I had this taste uh, of effort. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a goal that you've been working for a long time. We're going to touch on that soon. Is uh, becoming a mountain guide. Um, one of the things I'm interested to learn about is you obviously work with some great partners and great sponsors that allow you to just do some projects. Um, obviously, how do you work with your sponsors? Uh, do you, I think you read that I've read that you've helped develop products with them. You review and you work tech with the technical guys. What's your relationship with your sponsors, and uh, how do you work with all the different sponsors you have? So. My relationship with my sponsors is um, all good uh, with all the brands I work with. It's now many years. Uh, I know the people really well. We have a, a very uh, trustful uh, relation. Um, and then it depends on the brands. But uh, first of all, as an athlete, they ask you to produce content. They ask you to uh, to tell stories. They ask you to uh, make people dreaming with what you do. Yeah. And this is a uh, image part let's say uh, if you do a nice film if you do uh, uh, if you go in the mountains and you bring back some nice image uh, you have something nice to tell and the, the sponsors they love it but 
with a few sponsors, I work on product development, which is a part I really uh, enjoy. Yeah. With Black Rose, I worked with the, on the apparel part. I worked on one backpack and I also test uh, ski touring uh, skis. When they make new ski touring skis, I have them to test a year in advance. And, um, and yeah, it's very interesting uh, yeah. uh, work as well. I um, Someone told me that the these brands like to work with you because you can give good information and good uh, descriptions back to the designers and the, 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 the technical teams. Is that uh, – you like that sort of part of the work? Yes, uh I mean, when you use a backpack or when you use a jacket or a pants or skis every day, you and use them with uh, with your gloves. You use them with uh, different type of gloves. You you use them when it's uh, freezing cold. You use them when it's raining. Or you use them when it's windy. You have a lot of feedback to to bring. Yeah. Uh, if you try the jacket in the office without a, a backpack on it, you don't even see that the pocket is right under the. Um, uh, the shoulder belt, yeah. the strap, uh, and that you can't access it. If you use it for real uh, in the mountains and every day, you really see what is working well and what is driving you crazy because every time you want to open it, it's not opening. Yeah, it's not the right spot. <laughs> yeah. What about the, the the philosophy or the the practice of pink it and shrink it and making just uh, a, f- a female version of a male product? Do you think it's better that the brands are now evolving and making female-specific, let's say, skis and products? Ah, it's been uh, it's it has always been here. I remember uh, twenty years ago, I was doing some uh, ski tests for magazines, and there was ski for women, and we were already debating: is it better to have a, a women version, or does just women want to ski uh, steep, uh, stiff uh, skis like men? Uh, it's it's a delicate question because you have some really strong uh, women uh, out there that they want the same skis and the, the men they want yeah. the stiff skis because they are able to ski fast, they are able to turn it. And uh, maybe uh, you have uh, another public that is probably the majority who want some uh, easier skis to turn, uh, softer, um, things like that. Um, on apparel, it's a bit easier because the fit is not the same for uh, for women and for men. You don't have the same uh, body shape, so uh, we have uh, it, it's easier to design yeah. uh, specific uh, clothes. And for backpacks, it should be the same because our shoulders are not uh, the same. Uh, you can't have the same uh, shoulder straps for women and for men because we are not uh, the same. Like sometimes the ski backpacks, they can be so wide for for a woman, especially if you're a thin woman and small, uh, you can struggle with a backpack that is always loose on you. Um, so it makes sense to have a specific uh, women uh, yeah. products. For skis, um, I don't know. I'm really shared on that. Sometimes I like to have uh, stiffer skis and sometimes I'm like, ah, I like these skis, it's yeah, so easy. easy. Uh, I think we need both, really. I yeah. said to you before, I have I have three sets of skis now. How many sets of skis do you have? Ah, I have a lot. I have a lot because I have skis for um, all type of um, of ski of skiing. I have uh, three pair of ski boots. One super light, like for competitions or for really long days, carbon boots. Yeah. I have my uh, everyday ski boots that is uh, light but skiing very well, and I have the the ski touring boots that is uh, more free ride ski touring boots. But and for skis, um, I have the super light skis. 
for competition or for very long days. And then I have uh, my ski clients, the ski I use uh, when I'm guiding. Uh, oh, I have a lot. <laughs> How many backpacks do you have? No, a backpack. I have uh, two backpacks for the winter, one big, one smaller. Yeah. Um, how many ice axes do you have? I have a lot. I have a lot also because I have some for my clients, but I think some one day someone came home and uh, counted them uh, maybe 32. <laughs> well, it's, it's only 16 pairs. It's only yeah, 16, 16 pairs. <laughs> no, but you have the ice climbing, uh, technical ice climbing uh, ice axe, and yeah. I have two if I need for my clients. I have the middle ice axe. Uh, I have different, uh, different pairs of that. And then I have the ski ice axe. But I also have my older ice axe that I never use anymore, but I, I love having them home, uh, like the old quark or the load the old uh, summit techs they are 20 years old we were it's using them before but it's good souvenir so yeah. those are you can't really count those and uh, how many parapons do you have? Ponts? Parapons how many wings? Uh, parapons I have um, one uh, cross country uh, paraglider uh, that is uh, flying very well you, you, I use it for flying uh, for many, uh, for a, f a few hours, like when I try to travel in the sky, to cross cross country in the in the sky. Sorry, and then I have a single surface uh, paraglider that is uh, my lightweight uh, paraglider for um, the mountains. And now we just got um, a new uh, new wing that is. Uh, light one but it's not a single surface it's a double surface but it's still very light and I might uh, use this one uh, uh, now more than okay. the single surface uh, okay so the next pitch um, the next chapter in your life um, I think it's something you've been working towards for the last few years now but when I was doing your research with uh, a friend of your Vanessa Francoise for Mountain Reportage you said that you didn't think it was possible possible to become a mountain guide because you were 38 years old, but now you're doing it. <laughs> That's really interesting. I did not remember I said that, but probably I was uh, thinking uh, it uh, back in the days. And I'm now 46 uh, years old and I'm finishing my mountain guide uh, this year. But uh, yeah, sure. Um, it was uh, in 2013, we brought our friend Vanessa Francois, who had uh, an accident in the mountains, and she got uh, paralyzed. And we brought her climbing uh, El Cap in Yosemite uh, by the route of uh, Zodiac. And uh, it took uh, us uh, four, five days, four nights and uh, five days to, uh, to have her climb uh, El Cap. So she was not really climbing because she has not the use of her legs anymore, but she was pulling herself with uh, uh, on ropes with a specific um, system we had uh, work on. Yeah. Uh, we trained uh, two years before to, to go to Yosemite uh, with the system, with her, uh, to be able to, to succeed when uh, we would go to uh, to uh, Yosemite and, and to climb El Cap. And Vanessa, she had this accident when she uh, was training to um, to become a, a mountain guide. She, she really wanted to be a mountain guide. She was training a lot. She was in the mountains every day. And uh, one day she was climbing with a friend and she got 
hit by um, there was like a mushroom of uh, snow and ice above uh, above them on, on the climbing route and the this mushroom of snow and hard uh, hard snow and ice uh, fell on her and uh, it broke uh, her back um, and it was uh, yeah it was a tragedy tragedy for her. And I, I was always thinking at this time, uh, I'm, I'm too old to, to become a mountain guide or, or to try the, to try the, the course. After the four, climbing the 4,000, um, after climbing, okay. after climbing the 82 summits above 4,000 meters, I, uh, I think I saw uh, the things differently. Yeah. During this uh, adventure, I had some really strong climbers with me, but I had also uh, some uh, friends that were not uh, really climbers or not really mountaineers, and I had to uh, uh, manage everything and take care of uh, everything, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it gave me the confidence to um, to have a look at what was the, the guide education, what was the... What they were asking yeah. uh, to be able to enter it because I think you have the the technical skills to to climb and ski and and do that part of it, but there's also the the uh, the book learning and the, all the the other technical stuff you have to learn to be a mountain guide. Yes, to, you have to learn a lot, and also be in France before to be able to enter the first exam, you have to have a, a list of a lot of uh, ascent, ski descent, ice climbing. You have to have a journal of all these activities, don't you? Exactly, and I wasn't sure if I had it or not uh, because I thought what I did is not uh, anything special. So I check, I check the list, and I. I saw I was missing two climbing routes on on limestones on uh, on on tread climbing. So I asked uh, my uh, my partner, okay, can we go quick in Verdon? It was in November. It was freezing cold. Can we go quick in Verdon to do those two routes so I can uh, apply to the to the guiding uh, course? Yeah. So we went in Verdon uh, uh, to do those two routes of uh, of climbing on gear, and uh, I applied to the to the guiding uh, education and. Um, What's the association you need to apply for? In France, it's called ENSA um, School. Uh, so in French, École Nationale de Ski et d'Alpinisme. So it's National School of Ski and Alpinisme. Yeah. And it's the only place where you can uh, become a mountain guide, where you can become a ski teacher, when you can become a ski patrol. And it's where also you uh, learn uh, to become a paraglider. Okay. So uh become a mountain guide obviously what are the what are the steps become a mountain guide what are the steps yeah so you have to have this list uh, fully done and then they accept your uh, your um, profile and you have to go to the first exam that is the ski exam uh, in March, mid-March, you have the ski exam. On the ski exam, you have uh, a certain uh, elevation to do in a certain amount of time with a certain weight of backpack. They weight it at the beginning and they weight it on the top of the of the uphill. So yeah. if you drink, you have to calculate that if I drink, I need to have more weight because uh, uh, 
uh, you need to have the proper weight on top okay. of the uphill. And then you have to ski down. And on the ski down, you have four uh, main uh, uh, steps or four main um, phases. One, you have to ski fast in uh, big curves and they see how you, you manage to ski fast in bad snow. One, you have a really steep, uh, steep narrow couloir and they see how uh, agile you are on, on uh, jumping turns and uh, a small narrow couloir. And one, you have uh, to adjust your uh, the length of your turns and your speed in a um, bump terrain or bad snow terrain. And the other one, it depends. Uh, it could be uh, uh, another steep couloir or it could be another fast section. It, it depends uh, yeah. what they, what you have. And if you succeed at that, then you will go to the summer exam. And the summer exam, you have an um, orientation uh, uh, race, let's say. You have to be super fast and find uh, all the, the spots. The, yeah, all the the GPS coordinates. Exactly. Or uh, like find the little uh, triangle next to this river. I don't know. Okay. Uh, uh, I, th I forget the orientation term for that. Bali is yeah. in French, but I don't know I don't the know. name in English. Uh, anyway, and it's quite a complicated one. I remember we started at 110 this first day with this uh, test and we, we were only 17 to pass it. So 40 people uh, were already gone uh, yeah. after the first day. Uh, and we started uh, the summer exam at 110 people and we finished at the end we were 30 people to, um, to be um, qualified let's say. After the, the race, orientation race, you have the rock climbing uh, exam. But I did not have to do it because I'm already a climbing teacher. Uh, after that you have the Terrain varié, it's, let's call it the uh, uh, all-terrain test. So you have to be able to run really fast in a shitty terrain, jump uh, over uh, big uh, boulders or uh, climb up or climb down over big boulders and uh, uh, show how agile you are and how fast you are. And this was what I was uh, most scared of because I'm not 25 anymore. And I was seeing the young kids jumping and running super fast and being so uh, so agile with no fear on me. I already broke my two ankles, my two uh, um, calcaneus, my two heels. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be the crux, uh, crux part for me. But actually it went uh, fine. And we also have to climb a route with a big um, boot, not uh, rock climbing shoes, but uh, with big boots on the backpack and we have to do a, a very steep uh, down climb as fast as possible like a little uh, ibex uh, so those are the all terrain uh, test uh, it's 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 a bit tricky it's uh, but uh, but uh, i i passed it and the last test was the um, ice climbing test and in the ice climbing test you have uh, four uh, uh, four things to do. One is uh, climbing steep, uh, steep ice with a technical, two technical ice axes, and uh, two um, and the three other uh, steps are um, less technical ice axes. But you have to show how you are able to put your uh, your ten um, spikes of the crampons on the on the ice. How you are able to move to oh, down yes, climb. How do you move it down the, yes. on the ice? Yeah. 
And uh, you know, when you have uh, 40 or 50 uh, people that are passing uh, at the same time, the ice get broken. And so it's it's also very tricky. You can uh, you can miss this exam very easily just because the ice has changed between the first and the last one. It's uh, it's also very tricky. But at the end. Uh, At the end of the of the week, I, I succeed all the steps, and after that, you have another five days uh, test to um, so the teachers they can check that what you were able to produce during the the test, the short test uh, exams that are not really in the mountains, uh, are linked with with what you are able to do in the mountains. So for five days, you go in the mountains for rock climbing, for mountaineering, with your teacher, and then you. Uh, I can start uh, the, They test the, you even harder. Yeah, you can no you can start the training. Oh, okay. <laughs> And uh, the the training is uh is over four years. Four years and a half, let's say. So you have to start this four year training now? No, I'm finished. You finished your four yes. year training. I have three weeks of exam in August and I will be finished. Do you have to is there a period we have to work with a qualified guide or you have you are qualified to take clients now? Yeah, when you are aspirant after a year and a half, uh, you can uh, you can work with clients, but you have uh, a limitation on what you can do. You can't climb hard routes. Uh, for instance, you can't bring a client if you are aspirant guide. You can't bring clients to Matterhorn, but you can bring clients to uh, Mont Blanc. Uh, you can do the easy route. You can so you are aspirant now, or you're qualified? I'm aspirant okay. at the moment, and uh, yeah. All right. Um, what what do you think makes a good mountain guide? Uh, lots of things. First of all, you have to be good technically speaking, for, of course, and physically speaking. But you have to um, to be able to be flexible all the time, to adapt yourself all the time, and you also have to be almost a psychologist. You have to uh, to be able to understand your clients, to understand. Uh, To be aware when you, uh, you know, when, when you are a guide, you're roped with your clients and uh, you have to turn the head and see uh, if they are feel, feeling good or if they look really tired or if they're struggling, if they are happy, if they are not happy. Uh, you have to speak with them, you have to communicate, you have to adjust, maybe yeah. uh, find a plan B in uh, two minutes because you see it's not going to work what you have thought. Uh, it's not going to work. You know, most of the time, uh, the clients, the client call you and you have never done anything with him and he can't, or her, and he can tell you, yeah, I've climbed Mont Blanc, I'm training uh, regularly uh, all the weeks, I'm uh, in good shape, blah, blah, blah. So in your head, you make a, a first idea of the client and you offer, okay, I propose you to do this or this and we will decide just three or four days before when I know the conditions. Yeah. And then the person maybe comes from Paris and is not acclimatized with the altitude or he has done less sports than he used to because there was something in his life. And uh, sometimes you have made a plan, plan A yeah. and you arrive and you're like, oh, oh it's oh, not it's going to C. work. <laughs> so it's plan B and then maybe plan C. So you have to be able to be flexible, uh, adjustable and uh, also to be very... Uh, Um, how can I say that? Close to your clients in the term, like feel what they are feeling. Yeah. Like, are they struggling? Are they, are they at their ease? Are they, is it going to be a nice experience or not? Because, I mean, you can uh, pull a client up to uh, a client, you can pull a client up to Mont Blanc 
because you have planned to climb Mont Blanc with him, but is it going to be a good experience at the end if you was only uh, subir? How do you say subir in English? If he was only suffering the whole, yeah, suffering, uh, the, yeah. the whole day? Maybe not. Maybe it's better to, to say, okay, Mont Blanc, we can climb it together, yeah. but maybe next year. Next and for year. this year, we do something easier. You will have more fun and you will understand more the mountains and Mont Blanc will be a better experience yeah. after. How does that happen? How does that, like, leading a group and sharing an experience, like, is it mostly you have one-on-one clients or you maybe have three or four clients? I guess sharing an experience, it's a group experience rather than an individual experience. How, do, how does that dynamic work? So in the summer, most of the time, you only have one or two clients because um, in the summer, it's quite uh, fast. It starts to be technical. If you're on a steep uh, slope of snow uh, and you have four clients, if one falls, you have no chance yeah. to uh, hold it. If you have two or one client, you can hold it. So most of the time during the summer time, I have one or okay. two people on my rope, not more than that. But in the winter, That's when you ski tour, of, yeah. when you ski tour, you can have uh, up to six uh, people with you. So it's a different... Uh, yeah, different dynamic, different psychological um, dynamic to manage. Completely, because then there is also the, the uh, dynamic because of the group. Uh, if you are a group of uh, six and one is struggling and he knows his friends, uh, he will maybe uh, try to fight harder to, so, so everyone can go to the summit. And everyone on the group will uh, support him because yeah. they all want uh, their friends to go on the summit as well. Uh, if you're on a group that uh, you don't know the others, it's more complicated because uh, the, some people can be a bit angry. Ah, this one is not in good shape. Yeah. Uh, we have to wait for him. Uh, so it's completely different. So you different. have to manage that as well, that yes. dynamic and that... Uh sharing the group and motivating the group so if they're friends they can self-motivate if they're individuals you need to uh, be the motivator yeah totally it's not the same uh, strategy um but now i try to have only people i prefer smaller groups like four people it's already a lot to manage yeah. if you have a problem with a binding and you are six people uh, it's 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 not complicated, but it takes a bit of more time. If you have a group of four, it's better. And also, if I have a group of six, I want them to be to know that they all know each other. Yeah. Before. And when they when they reach the summit or they reach their objective, is the emotion different? Um, when they when they know each other and they've shared that experience. Um, no, actually, I don't think so. I think. Okay, I think everyone enjoys the summit and lives the experience of the summit um, at at his own way. You know, everyone has a different way to uh, to experience the summit. Maybe when you're a group of friends knowing each other, you have your own personal experience, and then you add the group uh, victory. Yeah. Let's say <laughs> it's not really a victory, but the group uh, summit success. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit different. It's uh, it's hard to tell. You you know, also, we are so busy in our head. Like, for us, when we reach the summit, we are not like, woo, woo. We are already looking, okay, how looks the descent? Is the snow safe? Uh, is there some tracks? Is there some ice? So we don't have the same uh, time 
than our clients on the summit because we we are already preparing the descent, yeah. looking at the sky. Are some clouds coming? Is it windy? Uh, how is my team? One is very tired. I will have to be careful of him during the descent. So there are so many things to to think when you are on top. You are eating fast and you're already looking at the at the descent while all the others are relaxing and enjoying yeah. and taking the time to eat. So success really is getting back down the mountain. That's how, reaching the summit. It's half the halfway. Getting down is probably just as difficult sometimes as challenging, isn't it? Totally. I would even say, for me, I think in my head, okay, if I am at, at the summit, I am at 30% of the of the day. Because uh, most of the time, the people, they uh, uh, lose uh, their focus. They lost. They yeah, lose. lose. Yeah. Because most of the time, the, the people, they lose uh, their focus when they uh, top out, when they reach the summit. Yeah. And statistics, Statistically speaking, most of the accidents they happen during the the descent. And as a as a guide, you know that. So you know you have your brain is way more uh, aware during the descent uh, than uh, during the ascent. Yeah, I was uh, reading. Sorry to interrupt, but I was reading. or oh, either probably talking to Zeb or someone else. But summit fever on like Everest is a real thing where people get to the summit but they they can't get down. Sure. So. Yeah, because. Their brain, oh, I um, I uh, achieve my goal, and yeah. suddenly nothing else works, and it's very very dangerous. So um, always think, okay, the summit is one thing, but uh, the success of the of the ascent is uh, is coming back down. And I always tell uh, the people I bring to the mountains, okay, we're going to do something long, it's going to be hard, but please. Keep some energy for the descent. If you feel extremely tired on the uphill, you have to tell me because the descent is demanding a lot as well. Yeah. So I always ask the people to keep some energy and to keep some focus for the for the descent. Okay. Um, becoming this mountain guide, is that a part of your wanting to give back? Give back to the mountain community and give back to... Um, just giving back more is it uh, or and and becoming a mountain guide was it a natural progression for you? Um, I think when I was fifteen, I really wanted to become a mountain guide. After I thought, ah, oh, this is a very physical work. Maybe um, it's too dangerous. It's too physical, and uh, maybe it'd be smarter or better to have a, a work where I have my brain working more than my body working. But after the um, 82, uh, 4,000 meters uh, mountains, I decided uh, it, it is what I, I loved. I love, I love being in the mountains. I love sharing uh, uh, these moments with uh, people, with friends. Uh, I love being outside and I love moving in the mountains, you know. So... Um, um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> was it a natural progression? I... To become a mountain guide, yeah, that's the. So maybe for the last uh, years, it was a natural progression. Yeah, yeah, maybe from my history, from my past, from uh, starting ski touring at the age of ten and climbing Mont Blanc when I was uh, young to now, maybe it was a natural progression. I just took some. Uh, I didn't went uh, straight. I took a lot of uh, longer. Yeah, a few details. <laughs> but you, I read somewhere that you said that mountain climbing is selfish, and obviously, being a mountain guide, you can't be so selfish anymore. 
Yes and no. Yes, mountain climbing is selfish because you do it for yourself. When you guide, and this is really the difference between when I am in the mountains with, uh, when we are in the mountains, Zeb and I, or when I am in the mountains with uh, uh, one good friend, it's not the same than when I guide. Well, first of all, when I guide, I'm responsible 100% of the people I bring in the mountains. I try to have them as comfortable as it can be. Uh, and also, uh, yeah, you, I'm not climbing the mountains I want. I'm climbing the mountains they want. Yeah. And I'm bringing them to what they want. And uh, uh, sometimes the uh, summit can be a bit not boring, but uh, okay, I've already done it 20 times. I go again, but it's because uh, the person won't yeah. want to go there and she will be or he will be happy there. Uh, so yes, you can't be selfish as a mountain guide. It doesn't work if you're selfish as a mountain guide. One of the things that I I, I like about you and when I follow you is you, you really do love the mountains and you've... Um, but to love the mountains, I think we need to protect the mountains. Talk to me about uh, your relationship with protecting the mountains, climate, recycling. This is um, an important part of your relationship with the mountains. Yes, totally. Uh, it's many years now um, I, I saw the mountains uh, changing and uh, changing fast. I moved to Chamonix 13 years ago and in 10 years I could already see uh, so many uh, uh, dramatic uh, change that uh, it's uh, it's almost uh, shocking and it's now uh, many many years I have uh, I'm trying to do better on my side on my side uh, for the planet I, I've tried to not take uh, to not fly anymore for um, for traveling uh, or decided to fly only once every two years or or fly for longer if, if uh, I go on expedition not go for three weeks but go for two months maybe um, things like that. It's not always always possible, but uh, uh, I, I try to, to do my best uh, to protect my uh, my uh, playground. And also, I'm involved in um, in two uh, associations, Protector Winters, and uh, we created one that is called uh, Une Bouteille à la Mer. It will sound... Uh, one bottle uh, in the ocean? Yes, one yeah. bottle in the ocean. Um, so, with Protector Winters, we have I'd been working a lot on um, on the communication, on the trying to uh, to have the people more aware of our acts and more aware of what is happening. And also, uh, the battle of the last years was to uh, reduce um, the impact of the travels to go skiing. Uh, there are many uh, many things we can work on, uh, and. Uh, all the ski lovers, uh, they take their car to go to go skiing, and during the, the um, holidays like February or Christmas, it's many many cars that travels to Sawa, to Otsawa, to many many places to go skiing, and we can do a much better work here. And Protector Winters had been uh, encouraging uh, carpooling or public transportation yeah. or trying to uh, to have uh, and to develop also more public transportation to help uh, having a more uh, uh, green um, green way for uh, people on on uh, on bikes and, and things like that. Uh, we've 
a bottle in the ocean, it's uh, it's different. We worked a lot on the plastic um, uh, situation because uh, the plastic situation is uh, is really uh, we don't necessarily see too much here in the Alps, but uh, when you go to the ocean, you see all those bottles of plastic. Or uh, even when you walk on trails, you see plastic everywhere. So the idea was to uh, to also uh, raise awareness about uh, how we consume, how we we buy things, and uh, try to to reduce all the all the packaging around uh, what we have. And we also all realized that uh, as athletes, when we got our um, when when I got uh, carbiners or harness or things like that, there was lots of papers around, lots of plastic around. Like if you get a ski helmet, you have a plastic around plastic. Uh, Around you have a, a plastic inside. Same for the shoes. You have the shoes in a in a paper box. You have a paper inside the boot. You have a, a paper to make the shape shape of the boot. You have a plastic around it. Uh, if you stop uh, to produce one plastic for one pair of shoes. Uh, for this model, for every size, it's already tons and tons of plastic that are not going to be in the nature, are not going to be uh, uh, burnt, and it's also tons and tons of plastic you don't have to produce anymore. So yeah. it's how we work. And we we worked a, we work a lot with the companies, like we uh, organize some um, meetings with uh, the outdoor brands we know around us, around Anti, around Grenoble, to uh, speak with them and to um, put to create a program where they, they uh, say, okay, this year, we are here. In one year, our goal is to reduce the plastic of uh, 10%, 20%. It's, so it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting uh, uh, way of working because we work directly with the, with the big brands yeah. and they are really uh, receptive of that. Some of the brands have been really great in even re recycling the waste from their factories when they're making skis and reusing that material. So it's it's a great uh, project to be part of. Yes, totally. And it's also nice to see how um, they are, uh, yes, they are committing. They are listening to us. They are committing. They are listening to others as well. Uh, and they are, they are trying. They are trying to make uh, to make better. Sometimes it doesn't work. Like we had, uh, we ask uh, a brand to uh, to have a less toxic uh, membrane for the jacket and the pants, because if you have those um, uh, chemical on your jacket and pants, then the snow goes on it, and then it goes on the snow, okay. and then it goes on the uh, nap phreatic phreatic uh, uh, water yeah. it, and then you drink this water with those uh, chemicals but the first jacket we had with no chemicals it was not really waterproof so so you have to try sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work uh, like uh, the sole for the, the skis that are made with recycling they are not working perfectly at the moment but maybe they are not working this year but maybe they will be working uh, next year yeah. so you you have to try you have to do something and uh, at the, in the end you will manage to have something that is uh, that is uh, working uh, working good yeah yeah so that's uh, people who want to get involved in um, protecting our winters. That's protectourwinters.com or protectourwinters.fr. Yeah, both. I'll, I'll put the, the links in the show notes. And unbottledealamere.org. .org. So I'll put the, those links in the show notes and you can uh, hopefully get involved and uh, protect our winters and not just protect our winters, protect protect our, our summers and our, our mountains and get involved. Yes. Um 
Yes, we need uh, little hands and uh, don't think that uh, what you do is not uh, helping the planet. Uh, every, every little step uh, is uh, doing better for our planet. And one of the other, one of the other um, projects you're working on in terms of little steps is EverRide and, buy, and buying uh, used products and uh, secondhand products. Yes, I, I think it's good to encourage uh, the uh, buying second-hand uh, products. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a good thing to, uh, to do. Yeah, we can all do that. We all want some new skis, but sometimes a second-hand pair just as good. Um, one of the things I, I want to know about is can you separate your life from the mountains? Uh, no. No? <laughs> I mean... No, I, uh, it's interesting because uh, um, uh, I see some people, they are like, ah, when we are old, uh, we will not be living in the, in the mountains and uh, things like that. But for me, I know, already know I will need to be in the mountains. Maybe not the whole year, but uh, I don't know. I'm too much uh, in love and uh, too much attracted by the mountains to... Uh, to be separate from them. I miss the mountains. Sometimes it's a bit funny, uh, uh, funny in a good way, uh, crazy in a good way. When we go on holidays, uh, I'm, I'm not feeling good the first days because yeah. uh, I already miss the mountains. And I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I, I prefer to be in the mountains climbing up. <laughs> uh, so I want to start off with probably the easiest pitch or the easiest chapter of this interview is um, how you play. Um, you've told me that playing for you is just is your job. You play is your job. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes or no. I mean, um, uh, I have the chance to uh, to work with my passion with the mountains uh, and to to make my living out of the mountains. Uh, it's a little bit different when you when you guide the people um, because uh, you are. Um, yeah, you are 100% responsible of them. And it's different if you guide, even if you are in the mountains and you enjoy the mountains uh, and you enjoy bringing the, the people in, into the mountains, it's a little bit different than if you guide or if I go in the mountains with uh, Zeb, for instance, yeah. uh, because uh, we both move at the same pace, because we don't have to uh, uh, take care of someone other than ourselves and because we know each other so well that uh, everything is... Uh, easy and in the flow um, but I have this chance to to be in the mountains for my living with people sometimes I don't know people sometimes I already had before uh, it, it's it's not always the same but uh, but um, my work is uh, is to be in the mountains play when it's possible to play so how do you play how do I play? Yeah. Ah, when uh, when we climb fast, a nice route. When we fly off off a summit. Uh, when we ski down a very nice uh, ski descent. Uh, and uh, when I am with my clients, I would not put the word play, but I would uh, put the word um, enjoy or lucky. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fun for sure. Uh, lucky to have this uh, office. Uh, and uh, and uh, and fun because you you spend some really nice time with with the people you bring and you know when you are at the summit of a mountain and the people you brought here um, uh, take you in his arms and uh, and is crying and is so happy it's very very strong it's I mean what other job will uh, will make that yeah. happen 
uh, I don't know, another, I don't know, other job there where someone would take you in his hands and cry and be like, this is the best day of my life. Or, this is a, a big dream came true. Or, yeah, it's very, uh, it's very strong. It's very beautiful. Too. Yeah, it sure is. I want to play a little bit of a game with you now. So it's a quick question and answer rapid fire i ask you a question and you give me the the first response that comes to your to your mind okay, okay quick q a q a uh favorite place to ski chamonix favorite place to climb uh, chamonix aussi. favorite place to fly chamonix summer or winter both uh what do you like about your job everything when was the last time you wore a dress um, maybe 10 days ago. Will we ever see blonde hair again? I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most French thing about you? My accent. Your accent? <laughs> what is your greatest strength? Determination. Uh, do you like to take afternoon naps? I love it. What's your greatest achievement? Being myself. Uh, what scares you in the mountains? Rock falls. Uh, what is something not many people know about you that you're happy to share? Huh. Uh, it will stay a secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what are you growing in your garden? Lots of things, uh, zucchini, salads, uh, kale, um, uh, roquette, rucola, arugula, and uh, tuk, tuk, uh, tomatoes. How do you start the day? Tea, coffee, or yoga? Yoga and tea. Uh, if you could be a jupette or a chamois? A chamois. Chamois. What is the best piece of advice someone's given you? Believe in yourself. What's the last film you saw at the cinema? Oh, my God. I don't go often at the cinema. Um, so hard to tell. I don't remember. Okay, it's been a long time then. <laughs> um, what do you buy at the bakery? In an organic shop. Organic bread? Yes. Uber Eats or cook at home? Cook at home. Do you have an Oponel knife? Of always with me. Always. In, in my handbag. Always. <laughs> What's always in your backpack? Lots of things, but, uh, well, lots of things. Uh, second down jacket. Second down jacket. <laughs> Uh, one word to describe the mountains. Amazing, beautiful. Uh, yeah. All right. The last, the last little pitch before we we meet, we reach the summit. Uh, these are the three questions that I like to ask. Um, the first one is, how does being in the mountains make you feel? It makes me feel really alive. It makes me feel. Myself, um, it makes me feel true. Uh, you can't, uh, you can't cheat in the mountains. You don't have filters. You don't have. Uh, you you have to be yourself with your, uh, 
with your brain, with your own decision, with your own doubt, with your own uh, strength. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're true in the your mountains. true self, all right. What do the mountains teach you about life? Everything. To, uh, to never give up, to always uh, trust the process, to trust yourself, to uh, always fight for something you think it's worth. Um, to be organized, to anticipate, to be flexible, um, to have, uh, yeah, to have willing, to have uh, courage, to have, uh, to dare for things. Um, it's uh, also uh, teach you uh, the power of uh, of being two or three people like uh, alone maybe you would not succeed in climbing uh, a summit but if you are two you can succeed yeah. in doing it and sometimes it's true in life maybe sometimes alone you cannot make your project happening but if you are two or a group of people you will make it happening so the mountains uh, they teach you everything she's a good teacher <laughs> my last question is um, can you share a story about being in the mountains think of a story you share with us I have so many stories yeah. in the mountains. What is uh, the first one uh, coming to my brain? Um, yeah, I think uh, it depends what type of story you want. But um, uh, I, I think of the, the story of uh, climbing Aiguivert by, by the Wimper Couloir. Um, I I went with uh, with Zeb. I I was not an uh, aspirant guide, and Zeb had a client, so I went with them because uh, the idea was to fly off the Aiguivert, and uh, I had never uh, fly off the Aiguivert, so it's something I really wanted to do, and uh, it was also uh, a sense that uh, I was uh, Zeb was like my uh, mentor for uh, for the guide education so i did this to um, also uh, to have uh, one ascent uh, quite technical ascent with uh, with a, a client and with zeb and uh, it was just crazy on top uh, because the clients uh, yeah the clients uh, took zeb in his arm and he was crying and he said Okay, now after that, I'm finished. Uh, I will never climb a mountain again. I've done the project of my life. And uh, now I don't bother my wife anymore with climbing mountains. Uh, you, It just happened. It's the best day of my life. And uh, yeah, it was really a, really a strong moment. And the fact we could uh, take off of the summit, it was maybe 7 in the morning or 7.30, we all took off of the summit from the from, from the Aiguivert and landed in Chamonix at 8, 8.30. And after that, um, the clients, uh, the family of the client uh, uh, came. We uh, we had a drink together and they left. And we looked at the weather with Zeb and the weather was still perfect. So we were like, okay, let's go again. So we <laughs> went up to, uh, we, we uh, took a shower at home pack another backpack with more technical gear. We um, we took the lift uh, to Aiguille du Midi. We took off with the glider from Aiguille du Midi and we land at a hut 
where normally you need three or four hours to hike to, to reach a hut. So we land on the snow above the hut, we slept at the hut, and we did a, another climb uh, the next day. Uh, and, and again, from the, the climb, we, we took off to, to land uh, in Chamonix. And days like this are a bit crazy because you can do so so many things if you have the right uh, weather and if you uh, and if you have a bit of skills, uh, you can um, you can do uh, so many. You have so many possibilities of uh, combination with climbing and flying and not being tired in the end yeah. because you're not uh, hiking down. You're not doing the, the long um, hike back up to Chamonix. You're just flying in 30 minutes or 40 minutes. You are in the in the valley taking a coffee and uh, an hour later, you can take do off again. Uh, again from uh, from the lift and uh, land uh, to another place and do another climb. Nice. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. It's what I hope to do more. <laughs> Well, Liv, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for uh, sharing some amazing insights with me. And uh, where can people find you? Where's the best place where they can follow your adventures and follow your uh, your trips? Is that uh, is on Instagram? Yeah, I think on Instagram it's where I am the, the more active. Yeah, I, I prefer to climb than to uh, post and share on the on social media, but I do it on Instagram. Yeah, so that's sure. Liv Sanso. Uh, or one word I think is your Instagram, but I'll put the the official link uh, link on the in the show notes. But uh, thanks very much, Liv. Thank you, thank you, Ashley, for uh, having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> so that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more stories from beyond the mountains, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a comment and review. It helps with people to find the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond the Mountains Podcast. So please like and follow the show. And remember, the mountains are more than just rock and ice, but the mountains are made up of the people who live, work and play in them.